celebrating New Year's. Uh, you probably know this. It's one of the oldest holidays celebrated. Uh, the earliest on record goes back 4,000 years, 2,000 B.C. with the Babylonians. And interestingly, the celebrating of the New Year, recognizing the New Year, is common to all people from all backgrounds. You could be atheist or you could be very religious. You could be secular. You could be Christian. It doesn't matter. You could be from any ethnic background uh, across the board. This is one of the most widely recognized and celebrated holidays uh, there is. And besides that, uh, it's across the board. You may or may not know this. It's, It's been across the board historically as far as how it's been celebrated. Uh, For instance, uh, the Babylonians celebrated the new year with the spring equinox in the spring, uh, whereas the Assyrians celebrated in the the autumn with the fall equinox. And then you have the uh, Egyptians, they they picked September 21st for their New Year's Day, and then the Greeks decided on December 21st. But the Jews had it best because they had two New Years. Do you know that? They had their civil New Year in the month of Tishri, which roughly corresponds to our September. And then they had their religious or their sacred New Year in the month of Nisan, which roughly corresponds to our April, and that's the Passover. And so, uh, but back in 1582, when the Gregorian calendar was adopted, uh, Gradually, universally, uh, January 1st became the recognized holiday that everybody celebrates now, uh, just as you and I do. I find it very, very sobering every new year. I, I don't know what, how you handle this, but this transition uh, from a year past and anticipating a year ahead uh, is just deeply sobering and moving to me. And... Uh, it's interesting, another bit of history concerning our new year. Uh, you, again, may or may not know that we get the name January from the Roman god Janus. And uh, he was the god of doors and gateways, in, entering a new phase and passing out of an old. And, uh, and he was always depicted as having uh, two faces, one facing forward, anticipating the future, one looking back, uh, remembering and reflecting on the past. And so I think it's a good practice, a very common practice, but a good practice to take some time to reflect uh, as we look back and think about the past, especially this past year, and as we move ahead into a new year, and to, uh, to really get a perspective on the present because of that. I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, poet and author who, uh, who said, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. And so my prayer this morning is through the scriptures we're going to look at that you'll leave here with a better, wider, deeper, more profound perspective on the present because of what God has done in the past and what he's promised to do in the future. And so we're going to look at uh, several scriptures. uh, But before that, I want to give you the title of the message. It's a bit of an audacious title. I think you'll agree. I'm going to explain everything this morning. So now 
I say that tongue-in-cheek, but in a sense, what I want to do is give a perspective, give a context in which to think about everything, uh, to think about life itself, just the reality that we are here, you and I are here, living and breathing. We are beings, living beings right now. A way to think about, a context for thinking about relationships, about the longings and the wishes and the hopes of the future, as well as some of the regrets and disappointments of the past. A way to think about grief and pain, a way to deal with and think about the opportunities and blessings uh, that will come this year, and even a way to process and think about all the beauty as well as the ugliness of life. We sang about that this morning. We sang about how great God is, how great thou art. So, uh, so we're going to deal with that this morning. You say, all that in one message, isn't that a little presumptuous? Uh, well, it, it can be, but not really if what we look at this morning and we study is really true. If this is really true, it's not presumptuous and it's not arrogant to speak about the sum of all things in a way to think about and process all things Uh, If these things that we look at are true, it actually is just a humble recognition of reality. And so we're going to look at several scriptures, four or five, and we're going to begin in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. So if you'll turn there, and the first thing we want to look at is a simple fact that you already know, but I think it's something we need to acknowledge more deeply, that God has unlimited Underline that, under limited ownership of all things. Psalm 24, such a profound, profound statement here. Psalm 24, let me just put it on the screen for you. Psalm 24, 1. Now this, this is an absolute claim. There, there's no fudging here. Either this is true or it's not. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness the earth and everything about it is the Lord's, belongs to Him, and its completeness, its fullness. The world and those who dwell in it. Some translations refer to all those who dwell in it. So again, it's a comprehensive, all-inclusive statement that God owns all th- He has unlimited ownership of all things. And why does he have that? Verse 2 says, For he has founded it, that is the world, the earth, founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And you skip down to uh, these worship verses down in verse 7. Uh, it says, Lift up your heads that this is a picture of, of the gates of, of, of the city of Jerusalem. Back then, the cities had city walls and they had gates that you entered for security reasons. And uh, so it's personifying the gates by saying, lift up your gates, or heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Now, who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall, become, shall come in. And who is the King of glory again? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And so he is... He has unlimited ownership of everything, everything, and he is sovereign over everything. He's the king of glory, and he deserves the worship that we just gave in song this morning because of that. Now, as the Lord Jesus asked Mary when 
He uh, told her he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. After he had made that promise to her, he said, Mary, do you believe this? And so that's a good question for you and me this morning. Do we really believe this? Imagine this, that you have, uh, you have someone that you know, a very kind, generous person that uh, you, you don't own anything, but the house you live in belongs to him. The furniture in that house belongs to him. It's all on loan, but you use it as your own. The car you drive is not yours, it's his. The money in the bank he, he provides, but it's not yours. You, you can use it freely and even make decisions how it's used, but it's not yours, it's his. And the children you have really don't belong to you, but actually belong to him. You see where I'm going with this? That imagine if you had a person that owned everything and you realize that everything you have because you own none of it is on loan, wouldn't that change your perspective and how you look at life right now and how you handle relationships, how you handle money, how you handle the stewardship of the things that are put in, in your trust? Well, on a far, far grander scale, that's exactly what it is because he owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That, I think, refers to the physical creation around us and then the world and all those who are in it, uh, the world there being, uh, the Greek word would be cosmos, but it's, it's the, the people that inhabit the earth. Whether they're believers or non-believers, they're, they belong to him because he created it all. A reference back all the way back to Genesis in verse 2, he founded it upon the seas, established it upon the waters. Read the first few verses of Genesis and you get the water and land aspect of God's creation. And what you have here, some have heard us, both John and I mentioned this a number of times, but Hebrew poetry has its force because of repetition rather than rhyme. And so when it says the earth is the Lord's and the world is his, that's a repeating everything. And then when it adds emphasis with fullness and all those who dwell therein, it's repeating for emphasis. When it says he founded the earth, he established it, it's repeating for emphasis uh, upon the seas and upon the waters. So it, it's trying to get the me- he's trying to get the message across in a way that would be memorable. It's driving home the point by the repetition. And it, it's instructive to look at a few other passages in, in, in the book of Psalms because this is a passage written by David. Uh, if you look over in chapter 47, you see another writer of Psalms, Korah, or the sons of Korah. And notice the statement here and how it relates to what we just looked at. Psalm 47 and verse 7. It says, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. King sovereign over how much of the earth? How much of the world? How many peoples? All people, all nations. Turn a couple of chapters over to chapter 50. And look at verse uh, 10. Uh, The Lord is speaking here through Asaph. So we saw David and his statement about God being over all things, owning all things. We saw it with 
uh, Korah, and now we see it with Asaph in verse 10. Speaking under inspiration from the Lord, the Lord says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, would I tell you? The Lord says, See, the world is mine and all its fullness. One other passage, 89, Psalm 89, and This is a psalm by a man named Ethan. And he echoes the same truth. Psalm 89, verse 11. Ethan in worship is saying on behalf of the Lord, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all its fullness. Why? Because you founded them. You created them. It came out of your hand. It came out of your creative power. It came out of your intelligence and your personality. So the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who are in it. So you say, okay, I know that. I believe that. That's a big truth. Uh, It is all-encompassing. But what does that mean in practical terms? Well, suppose you have a friend that has different convictions than you do. And they have different beliefs than you do. And you know that your words and your actions has impact on this friend. Somebody you care for could even be maybe a family member. But they believe differently, at least in some areas, than you. How does this truth impact something that practical and how we think about and process relationships, even with people that we're not in agreement with? Take a moment and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And there's an answer there. Just one example out of a multitude of examples we could give for how this grand truth that the Lord has unlimited ownership of all things, how it should impact daily life and our present perspective. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You may be there. I'm still traveling. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a passage where uh, some describe it as dealing with doubtful things. Uh, there, there were many gods that were worshipped in Corinth at that time, and people sacrificed to those gods, and then they took the food or the meat that was sacrificed, and they would sell it in the marketplace. And so the question arose for Christians at that time, is it okay or not okay to eat meat and that's been sold in the market? So here's what Paul tells the people in Corinth. Verse 24, 10, 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the market. Ask no questions for conscience sake. You don't have to worry about it. Just you're free to eat it. But notice the reason, the basis, the truth on which this practical uh, activity or response is based. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Verse 28, but if anyone says to you, uh, this was offered to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for your own conscience sake. In other words, don't violate your own conscience when you know you're going to impact somebody else's life by the way you act or what you have to say. Again, the basis for doing so for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You see how this grand summation of truth that God is the owner of all things ought to impact 
what we do and do not do in relationship to other people, even people with whom we disagree. You see, I, I can't say, well, that's their problem if they, if they don't uh, believe like I believe. And uh, what the Lord wants you and me to do is be an example, be a witness, be a testimony, and to understand that your attitudes, actions, and words impact people. And you do, you do not belong to yourself, and I don't belong to myself. So therefore, this truth ought to impact that on a daily basis. One, one other truth before we go to, to, to the New Testament. Uh, notice Psalm 24, where it's located as, as the, the book of Psalms was put together. The Psalm just before it is called the Shepherd Psalm. This would be chapter 24, or Psalm 24 would be what's called a royal psalm because it's about the king of glory, it's his sovereignty over all things. But this is, it comes right after the shepherd psalm, and the shepherd psalm, 16, 17 times, it uses the personal pronoun, I, me, my. A deeply personal relationship with the good shepherd who cares deeply about you, where you are, in everyday, ordinary Troubling as well as good circumstances. And that great psalm closes with, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell on the house of the Lord, the house of the Maker, the house of the one who owns all things. I'll dwell with him forever. I find these truths profound and deeply, deeply moving. It gets better. Turn over to John chapter 1. We've been in the book of John for a number of weeks as John is, is teaching and doing a, such a fabulous job leading us through the study of that book. And so he's covered what I'm going to be looking at, but I want to just emphasize it in relationship to what we're looking at this morning. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, and let's stop right there. In the beginning, all the way back to Genesis, again, back to creation, that's why the truth of creation, God's creation, intelligent design, the fact that he created it, we're not here by accident, is so critical and foundational to everything. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, referring to, to Christ and his pre-incarnate state. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, Nothing was made that was made. So this second truth pointed out here, God is the source, the origin of all things. That's the passage here in John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him. And then notice, again, adding emphasis, without him, nothing was made that was made. And so, in the beginning, answers this incredible reality of our being, our existence. Now, I don't know about you. Some people are more practical. They're not, they don't do a lot of uh, personal reflecting and philosophizing, uh, but they're more practical and act, action-oriented. Others are more reflective. But I think all of us at some time in life take into account or at least think about, I am here. I'm a living, breathing being. I'm alive for now. Just the, do you ever stop and think about the wonder of the fact that you are, that you live, that you breathe, that you relate, that you have longings, you have 
relationships, that, that there, there is something to this life more than just accident. We, we did not come from meaninglessness and nothingness. But we come from the hand of a God who knows us and loves us and desires deep, intimate relationship, fellowship, and companionship with us. That's why you have such need to relate to other people. One of the big catchwords in our, uh, in our society is the word community. Everybody wants community. They want relationship. And trying to get it sometimes through, through the Internet or through particular groups that you're part of. But, but there's a longing in every human heart to be needed, to be loved, to be valued, to belong. That's part of the reason you're here this morning. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the heart of a personal God who desires and longs for deep fellowship and relationship with you. You're made in His image. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. And I think it's wise to ask the questions, why do I always have this sense of need for this? Why do, what is it that makes me want to be and need to be loved and to love someone else? And why does it hurt so much when that doesn't work out? And so... This very simple yet profound statement, I think, tells us. I read an article, it's a republished old article by uh, Chuck Colson, who was the head of prison fellowship and uh, and used to have a radio program, still is still produced with John Stone Street, but uh, Breakpoint is a radio program and and, and a publishing group that... uh, seeks to deal with current issues. Uh, years ago, Colson uh, had a, a debate with Madeline Murray O'Hare. If you remember, Madeline Murray O'Hare is the well-known atheist from Texas that um, led the fight that eventually ended up in the Supreme Court that took prayer out of public schools. And, uh, and there are all kinds of opinions about that. Uh, but um, she disappeared along with her son and, grand, and granddaughter in, in around 1995-96 and for a long time didn't know what happened to her. It ended up, it was discovered that she, all three had been murdered, uh, but she just disappeared. And after uh, a few years, uh, the IRS uh, confiscated her property to pay back taxes, and so they discovered her diaries. And... Uh, and in her diaries, uh, Colson relates how uh, they confirmed how, what a, a bitter person she was and how she was deeply racist and anti-Semitic. Uh, she had a longing to be wealthy and to have uh, political power, considered it, her diary entries pointed to the fact that she wanted to, to run for the, for the Senate and hope someday to become president. So she had great aspirations. And at this debate, Colson assured her uh, after the debate was over, she says, I just want you to know that there are Christians who are praying for you and wish you the best. And Madeline Murray O'Hare turned to him and said very snarkily, and I wish you failure. So she had this strong public persona. But in her diaries, a 1959 entry uh, reads this pathetic despair, as Colson described it. The whole, she, this is her speaking, the whole idiotic help, hopelessness of, the, of human relations descends upon me. Tonight I cried and cried, but even then felt nothing. 
In 77, she said, I failed in marriage and motherhood and as a politician. And then the most poignant statement she makes is found several times throughout her diary, and it was simply this, somebody, somewhere, loved me. So this woman was so hard against the God who loved her and so hard against everybody else, had that deep longing. Where does that come from? With somebody who's convinced we came from nothing going to nothing. John chapter 1 answers it. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And then the statement follows. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, 4. In him, that is in Christ, the revelation of God in flesh, in him was life. That's, that's our being. And his life was the light of men. In other words, if you want to understand life, its purpose, its meaning, where we came from, why we're here, where we're going, if we want to understand how things ought to work, then walk in his light. Because the, the, the concept of light in Scripture is always revealing, giving understanding, putting things together, developing wisdom. Psalm 36.9 says this, For with you is the fountain of light, and in your light we see light. I love that phrase. In your light we see light. In other words, in your light, in light of who you are and who we are in relationship to you, Ah, now it makes sense. You ever hear somebody say, ah, the light turns on. It's understanding. Psalm 119 says this about the Word of God. The entrance of your Word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. It seems like everybody and his brother is quoting C.S. Lewis, but uh, he had made some profound insights and some profound statements. And one of his statements in regard to this is this. He says, I believe in Christianity and Christ like I believe in that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. You see the sun is risen, there's the evidence that it's there. But the sun is risen, taking away the darkness, it gives you sight and understanding of what's around you. That's what Christ and Christianity does. Madeline Mary O'Hare fought against the very one who loved her and came to give himself for her. But she's just following a long human tradition because down in John chapter uh, 1, verse 10, it says he was in the world. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. But here's the good news. But as many has received him. To them gave he the power, get this, as many as received him, those who believe in him, to them he gives the power to become children of God, to be part of his family. Those who believe in his name, who were born not of of blood, not, you don't inherit from your Christian parents' salvation, not by the will of the flesh, not by determining you're going to try to do better, nor the will of man. Somebody else's 
work on your behalf and prayers for you after you die. It's not that. It is the finished work of Christ. I read recently this, uh, this statement, if I can uh, locate it here. It says, the, the essence of sin is that we human beings substitute ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. That's how salvation comes about. It's not by the will of man. It's not by the will of the flesh. It's not by something we do because our condition is absolutely hopeless. Our condition, our situation is hopeless. It's absolute. But the Lord's provision on our behalf is also absolute. This God who owns everything, who is the source of all things, he's not only the source of life, living and breathing, but he's the source of eternal life, and only he is. It's not something that we do that earns it, because as John likes to say, and it's a, it's a great way to describe it, we owe a debt that we can never pay. The wages of sin is death. That's total separation forever. And we have a righteousness that we can never earn. However good we try to be, we'd never achieve the righteousness of God. So our need is absolute, but his provision is absolute because he came and paid the debt that we owed that we couldn't pay and provides us a righteousness that we could never earn. And it's all as a free gift, something that he has done. So the doing is done. A few months ago, I came across this old, old hymn. It's, it's from uh, back in the mid-1600s by a man named James Proctor. But listen to this. It's got some of the old-style language. But I think John has passed it along to someone who's going to maybe do some uh, updating of, of both the words and the tune. But it's called It Is Finished. Just listen as I read. Nothing, either great or small, nothing, sinner, no. Jesus died and paid it all long, long ago. When he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die... Everything was fully done. Hearken to his cry. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done long, long ago. Till Jesus' work, till Jesus' work you claim, cling by simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. So, Cast down your deadly doing, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone, gloriously complete. It is finished. Yes, indeed, finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Our need is absolute, and God's provision is absolute. That's John chapter 1. But it's even better. Turn to Acts. Acts chapter 17. Now, just to give you a little context here, this is the Apostle Paul. He was on a, his second missionary journey, and he had, uh, he had left the northern part of, of Macedonia, and, and he came into Greece, and, and he was waiting for two of his co-workers, Timothy and Silas, to come and meet him. 
And so pick up in Acts 17, verse 16, and it's fascinating to read. It says, verse 16, Now while Paul waited for them, that is Timothy and Silas, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. He became deeply, deeply concerned and burdened. Why is that? When he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who, would ha- who happened to be there. So he, he worked within the synagogues, what would be somewhat like a church today. And then he went out in the marketplace where people did business and, and he engaged in conversation with those folks and uh, sought to, to talk with them about their beliefs. And he does it in such a masterful, respectful way when you read the whole, uh, the whole story here. But uh, it describes some of the people that he interacted with. And skip down if you would. Uh, it says in verse 22, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, which was a, you might, might have heard of the Acropolis where the Parthenon is. Well, just northwest of that is another smaller hill called the Areopagus. And it's both a physical location as well as where a group of of uh, city and state leaders gathered to do politics and legal decisions. And so Paul was taken over to talk with those folks, and, and here's what he says. And now, now think of his audience. He, he's in a very prominent place with prominent leaders, a little bit like going to Capitol Hill and speaking to people that are part of the Senate and the House. Verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim. Let me tell you about the one you don't know so that you can know him. And, and listen to his message and see how it fits in with what we're looking at this morning. Verse 24. So Paul said to these people, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all, circle it, to all, life and breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries and their dwellings. In other words, he set the ethnic geographical boundaries. And why did he do that? So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. And here is that Next statement, we'll put on the screen. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. We're just saying that. In him we live and move and have our being. God is the sphere in which we live. Some use the Latin phrase, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Everyone, believer and non-believer, we all live in the presence of and before the face of God. In Him, we live and move and have our being. But before Paul ever says that, he goes through this incredible description. This is a very, very brief message and testimony, but so profound, so clear to these people who had temples to every kind of God you can think of. Andy Miller just went 
to Athens uh, a couple of months ago, spent two days or maybe a day and a half, I don't remember, but he made a quick tour. And, and he was telling me that the thing that burdened him and made him most sad was to see these grand uh, ruins of what would have been even grander buildings that were temples to the gods that these people worshipped. Intelligent uh, people, people that were part of a very wealthy, very, we would call it a successful uh, nation at that time. We do know, don't we, that people are inherently religious. We are. We will believe something. We will honor someone or something. We will attribute high value to a relationship, to a job, to a degree, to a group's acceptance, whatever it may be. Or we may make something with our own hands and bow down and worship it, uh, which has happened throughout history and still happens around the world today. But people inherently are worshipers because they need and they want some sense of significance. That, that there is uh, security somehow in this life about the future and some way of dealing with the complexities of the pleasant, pre- present and, and dealing with whatever has happened in the past that still we drag along behind us. People are inherently religious. And so Paul says to them, I, I, I recognize, and he, he was speaking this respectfully and humbly, I believe. Uh, I recognize that you're very religious. And, uh, but what I want to speak to you about is the God who is behind all that you're seeking. That this is a God not made with hands. This is a God who transcends everything. That's what worship is about. That's what we're doing here this morning, not just with the music, but with the word. This is all worship, not just the music time, and it's to bring us to a greater awareness of the greatness of who God is and what He's done and who we are in relationship to Him so that we would bow before Him and say He alone is worthy because in Him we live and move and have our being. Either that's true or it's not. So there's, there's no room for fudging. There's no middle ground here. These are absolute statements there. <clears throat> Summary statements. And so when we look at the, at the world around us and we think about the fact that we exist, we exist because He placed us here. We continue to exist because in Him we live. And we are moving towards some kind of end. All kinds of opinions in the world about what the end is, the Lord describes it. We can have great confidence, great courage about the future because of who we know in the present. Of Him, that is our origin, our past, and through Him, that's our daily life, blessings, questions, frustrations, successes, through Him, that's our present, and then to Him are all things. To Him. We are, we are moving toward a meaningful end. And not just an end, but a continuance. Of Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. Let me just, as we begin to wrap up, just, well, let, let's just go to, to, to Romans chapter 11. This is the song we just sang, and we'll wrap it up here with this statement that <clears throat> God is, it's just a truth, uh, and it should be in our recognition 
the focus of all things because of what we sang and what uh, the scripture reading earlier. Uh, Listen to these again, deeply, deeply, all-encompassing, profound words. Verse 33, Paul has just dealt with some very difficult issues from Romans 1 through 11 about the condition of man, about what Christ has done to provide through his grace, about choosing Israel to be his unique people through whom Messiah would come, things that would be hard to fully comprehend and understand. And it, it seems as he just... Realizing that this is so, Paul breaks out in in an expression of praise and worship. In verse 33 of Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So a rhetorical question, who's known the mind of the Lord? Quoting Isaiah. Who's become his counselor? Who Who can advise him on how to run the world? Who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? In other words, who can ever put God in their debt? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. Of him, through him, to him are all things. Do you realize that God is not intimidated by questions? In fact, according to what we see here, we should have questions. If God is, and He is who He is revealed to be in the Scripture and in what we've been reading, then it makes sense we ought to have questions because we cannot know everything. We we live within the boundaries that are spoken of in Acts chapter 17. Those boundaries set there so that we will wonder and want to know more. That's why there's such debate over the years and philosophies trying to deal with those ultimate questions of life of where we came from, why we're here, where we're going. Well, this answers it in a very deep summary form. This is the summation of the summation. Colossians chapter 1 puts it this way, that, that Christ, through Christ, He is preeminent above all. Through Him, everything was created. And by Him, everything consists. Everything holds together. And so... Today, as we go into the new year and leave the, other, the old year behind, whatever's happened in this past year, you may have had some significant failures and regrets, and it's hard to let go of it. Or maybe it's years past. Understand that the grace of God takes care of that. We have no idea what's ahead. As I quoted when we began, yesterday is history, tomorrow is mystery. What we have is the present, and it's a gift. Every day is a gift of God, and we live it borrowed on loan from Him. And it, it should be lived with a deep consciousness of His presence and His will. Daniel chapter 5, a king named Belshazzar was a pretty arrogant guy. He was having a party with a lot of his uh, national leaders and kind of congratulating himself, patting himself on the back about what he had achieved and how great his kingdom was. And in that party, he took out the vessels from the temple, and that was too much. You remember the writing on the wall? That's Belshazzar at his party. Uh, What you may not remember is in that chapter, chapter 5, and it's worth reading, the Lord said to him through Daniel, understand that I rule over the nations of the earth and I give it to whom I will. The Lord's words to Belshazzar. 
And then he tells him, I hold your breath in my hand, and I own all your ways. Because even a pagan king or a devout atheist, as well as believing people like you and me, live in the presence of God, of Him, through Him, and to Him, are all things. May that be at the forefront of our thinking as we process today. Would you bow with me as we pray? Father, I thank you. I thank you for your incredible truth that you have revealed and preserved for us in your word. That you are life and you are light. You give us understanding. In your light, we see light. Lord, I I pray that you would take these things that you have revealed and stated for us to read and ponder, that we would reflect on them and let them take deep, deep root in our hearts to make a difference in today, the present, as we live before your face. Lord, may we honor you with our lives. And if there's anyone, Father, uh, listening today, both here or online, that may not have understood the great need they have for you, that, uh, Lord, they would understand their need is absolute, but your provision is absolute. It's complete. And the only thing they can do is to believe that you are who you are and that you have done what you have said you have done and that Christ paid it all. And by placing their faith in you, they can know that they have life forever. Oh, what a promise. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. And Lord, we say with the writer of Revelation, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Thank you, in Jesus' name.